The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. All right, I'm going to start with a, uh, a very practical question that uh, I'm going to kick to you guys first. Um, so someone asked for suggestions to transition into gospel conversations. So a question about evangelism. How do we move a conversation along that we can talk to people about uh, the gospel? So we all probably have some different ideas on that. But Paul, you want to start there on the end? Well, I think in, with this particular question, context is, is everything. You know, um, who is it? Where, where are you? How much time will you have? How, you know, what's the background of your relationship with this person, if any? And all those things are very important. Um, I know one, one particular method or strategy to uh, talk to somebody that you've never met before. Maybe you're sitting down at the hotel lobby waiting for your Uber and they're sitting there. This came from Phyllis Sweeney, one of our old members. Uh, she was a dear lady. I remember getting phone calls from her. Uh, Paul, pray for me. The man's coming over to fix the dryer, and I want to talk to him. Please pray. And she would really put a lot of stock in having other people pray for her as she would witness to other people. Um, and one of the things she, she would say, she even told me she did this once in a hotel lobby. Um, she was a, a, a woman. Her husband was, I think, an engineer with IBM. They, they were well off. So she traveled a bit, and she you know, talked with a lot of wealthy people in the upper class, and she would sit and, and say, good morning, how are you? And, you know, just be g- gentle with them. And would you mind if, if I share with you the greatest thing that ever happened to me? <laughs> and the person would be like, no, of course not. What, what, what's that? <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then she would go in and, and share the gospel with, with him. And I thought that was wonderful, how warm she was and how loving that she was. Um, I know at, at the high school where so many people at the public school where I taught were very liberal and very um, anti, uh, you know, what's that acronym you see? Uh, it has all the different religions in coexist. one. Coexist. Coexist. Like yeah. that was kind of the, the highest moral thing is to coexist and to tolerate everyone and and even though people didn't know me, they, they knew I was a born-again believer, word got around, and I think they assumed that I was just an intolerant person. So I, I prayed and asked God to please help me to not live up to that caricature. And I tried to eat lunch with them and not witness to them for about two months and just develop a relationship with them because I knew I was, this is context again, I knew I was going to be with them the whole year, maybe even a decade, and I, and I would want to have them in my home, invite them over, and win an opportunity to really win over their heart. But that's where context comes in. Somebody else where you're on an airplane, you know, you could kind of use one of Phyllis Sweeney's uh, sweet, sweet inquiries. But. So I think context is everything. And really being prayerful, and I think the most important thing, and Pastor Smith preached on this when he preached on evangelism, is that natural way. We, we all are... We're all created by God. We're all made in his image. We all have needs. He's made us as social beings. So as we think about meeting those needs, 
and, and having a, a segue for the gospel. Like, you look, you look bummed out today. You, are you okay? Are you all right? What, what's going on? And you show that you care, and then, then there's a segue, hopefully, to develop that opportunity to share with them. So that's, that's what I have to say. Okay. I can see Pastor Paul's effectiveness in the way, the character that he has developed in his own presentation of the gospel. It would be interesting, it would be ideal if we had specific texts that says this is the way you're to speak. But we don't, in God's wisdom. There are examples, we have the example of Christ, as, as maybe will be mentioned, where he spoke to the woman at the well, took the occasion and used that occasion to be able to present, of course, the gospel himself. I personally feel like there's, uh, like Paul, I think that the, um, the opportunity that you're speaking to the people, I think first of all there needs to be prayer on your own heart. And ahead of time, if you have the opportunity, you know you're going to speak to a neighbor that God will get in the hearing. Prayer on your own part, that God give you wisdom to understand his situation, and then look for that opportunity. We talked about some great sin that's going on. It opens the opportunity to speak about sin, or somebody that has died. Then you say, well, have you ever considered the reality of death? Just different opportunities that God would open up in the conversation that you're there. There are times when it's frustrating. I have a neighbor that I've spoken to over 30 years, and I've learned not to ask not to ask certain questions about coming to church and all these kind of things. There are times, actually, when I've spoken to my neighbor, and I feel like, you know, you need to come with me to worship God for all that He's done for you and I, just to give praise and thanks to Him, just to make them recognize that there's a God. My greatest desire is in speaking to them is not just to get them to church. It's important. That's where the gospel is being preached. It's to somehow reveal to them the gospel in simple terms. The fact that Christ died for sins, that he rose again, that he is in heaven today, that he is God-sent Savior to sinners. And that's sometimes, as you get started in this, there's opening there. They get right at it. But that's usually my greatest desire to do. But as far as the approach, God Philip Sweeney's approach, I think a lot has to do with with the attitude we present. I, this is awkward. We were at a football game last night, yesterday afternoon, and they had these speakers. Guys were just saying, "You are a sinner. You're going to hell. You got to get saved. You got to get born again." Just hollering at it. I thought that's not the way to reach it. It's going to turn people away. So there's ways of kindness, and respect, and love and when that's expressed I think it has effect it's all in God's work but he uses the means and those those are some of the means that I think are helpful mm -hmm. good <clears throat> uh, there's there's something often talked about it's called uh, for lack of better terms gospel talk and so our just our regular conversations with people that we are talking about the things of God we're thanking God, we're giving glory to God in just our regular conversations. And people recognize that in time, that something good happens or uh, they're, they're talking about something that's happened to them and, and we want to acknowledge that. We can just simply say, praise God for that and um, have, have that sort of, and, and most of us probably do because this is how we think as Christians, um, and it's a, it's a very natural thing for us. And sometimes that 
that allows us uh, to uh, kind of open up on that a little bit more. And we can go into our own experiences and talk about how the Lord has helped us or blessed us in certain areas. Um, other times, a, a, very, uh, a very simple question I like to ask that's very uh, disarming because it sort of puts it on uh, that person to be able to respond however they want is if I have an opportunity, I'll ask someone, um, do, you have any, do you have any spiritual beliefs? Um, and just let them talk, whatever, whatever it might be, and you might hear some crazy things, but, um, but that usually starts a good conversation. And, and I think Christians often are scared to talk to others about the gospel, but, um, but most people are actually willing to have those conversations. I've found some aren't, um, but by and large, people are willing to, to talk, and especially if you give them the opportunity to share their ideas and the things that they're, they're thinking about and whatever it is that they believe. Uh, other times, it's just a matter of uh, finding uh, opportunities based on whatever the conversation was. I, on, uh, on Monday night, I was in an Uber in, uh, in London, and our driver uh, was talking to us, and he said something about, um, <clears throat> he was going to make a joke, and he said, I better not say that I need to watch my tongue. I could, I could, um, I could cause a lot of problems by the things I say. And so I said, you know, uh, there's, um, there's a saying that uh, your tongue is like the rudder on a ship, and uh, it's very small, but it directs, uh, how, uh, it directs how it goes. And I said, it's also kind of like a, a spark, that if it's, uh, it could set off an entire fire and burn an entire forest. And I said, do you know where that comes from? And he said, no. And so I said, it's in the book of James in the Bible. Have you ever read that? And so we were able to start talking, and then he pulled off on the side of the road, and he was in a car with three pastors, so we shared the gospel with him there, and uh, it was good. Now, I admit, I get to cheat a little, because usually someone asks in a conversation, what do you do for a living? And they just assume uh, it's coming. But, um, but there are a lot of... Uh, <laughs> There, there's a, there are a lot of ways uh, in very natural conversation. I think part of the, part of the challenge with a lot of sort of um, more methodological gospel sharing things that uh, people go through training for and do, um, they're, not, they're not bad, uh, and the desire there is really good, but um, m- much of the time it's very unnatural. Um, and it doesn't really, it, it comes across more as I'm, I'm, trying to, uh, I'm, I'm trying to do this as a program and you're a project as opposed to you're a person. And I care about you and I care about your soul and I want to love you and be kind to you and uh, develop something here where we can have um, a conversation that would be of, of great use to you. Um, so I think, uh, I think a very uh, a natural conversational relational approach in most instances is, is key. Um, another, maybe sort of the flip side to this is to realize that there will be people you share the gospel with that at times will become very hostile. And uh, they will tell you all sorts of things about yourself that you didn't know. And, um, and, it's, and it's good to remember what the Bible says in those situations too. There are times when um, it is casting pearls before swine. And we just need to know that, uh, that we may need to just back off. And that hurts us because we want 
this person's good. We want their salvation. But in the end, uh, this is the instruction the Lord has given us, uh, that, um, that when that hostility exists, that there are times we just need to, uh, to back away. And maybe in time, the Lord will give us other opportunities. But, um, but there, there are a lot of good ways, very helpful, very natural ways to have those conversations. So that's just one question I like to ask. What are, you, what are your spiritual beliefs? And uh, see, where, see where it goes from there. <clears throat> All right. Um, let's go with uh, maybe one more uh, practical question here. How, how can I explain to my six-year-old why she can't have Jesus bread? So communion, the Lord's Supper. Why, uh, how do we explain to a child why we would withhold from them the Lord's Supper or even in that, uh, for that matter, baptism, the means of grace in those regards? Either of you wants to start with that. Um, my wife had a good suggestion for this one. I thought it was good to be, on, you know, to be honest with the six-year-old. The six-year-old's not a three-year-old, not a 12-year-old, but they, you know, they can comprehend and just to say, well, you know, you're not a member of the church and, and the Lord's Supper is a, is a church ordinance. So one day when you become a member, you'll be able to participate in the Lord's Supper. And you're not saying that that child isn't saved. You're just telling them that it's a church ordinance and uh, they have to wait till they become a member. And hopefully which usually is not the case with a six-year-old. That means more questions will be coming after it, right? But if you're just honest with them and, uh, you know, kind to them, I think that's the best approach. I agree. Um, it's interesting to talk to some of that six-year-old and present the answer to that question because what you want to do is you, you want to make sure that they believe and a child can believe. We've got testimonies. A child, six-year-old, four-year-olds, I've heard that were truly converted. But there's always a question mark because there's so much influence that the parents has over the child and the child to yield to what the parents said. But I think it's right. I think you need to be honest with them and, and tell them this, tell them the truth that they're, they're six years old, they are maturing, they're growing, and there's a time coming when there's more knowledge and more... Um, intellectual uh, relationship with God and with man. It's an increase in. And that that time comes at various times. There are some kids that can get, can be baptized at a younger age because they've disproven themselves. And, uh, but I think the important thing is, is that you don't, I don't, well, I wouldn't want them to consider that they have to wait until they're 16, 17, 13, 14, whatever, in order to be saved so that they don't get themselves confused that they're going to take this Jesus bread and that's the means of salvation. I think that's a good explanation of what the Lord's Supper is, the remembrance. But the important part to me is you don't want to discourage them. I think, personally, in my own experience, I've done that, discouraged because I just think they're not old enough. But a child is, in whatever age, if they're truly believing, that's, that's all that's necessary. And we don't know the decision of their heart. God does. And so somehow to imply to them that they have to wait till a certain age before they can become a Christian, become saved, that, that, that's a danger. That's the danger I see 
but otherwise I think it's just a practical explanation of the realities of life. Good. Yeah, w one of the difficulties with children growing up in a Christian home is actually ever knowing when they are converted because they trust their parents. Uh, it's hopefully the only thing they've ever really heard their entire lives, and, and it's really part of how they think. And um, I assume in most, if not all, of our homes, they they come to church regularly, you're doing family worship, you're talking about these things at home, maybe you're homeschooling or they go to a Christian school, so they're hearing about things here. And so they're just surrounded by the gospel, which is a wonderful thing, and we want to uh, keep doing that. Um, but children really struggle with understanding when am I truly saved? Am I just believing this because it's what I've always heard? I don't know anything else to be true. Um, and praise God for that. Um, but, uh, but as parents and as church leaders, we want to be careful that we're not giving a child a false sense of assurance uh, if they truly haven't been converted. And so that's why uh, we do want to wait a little bit along those lines. But I agree with what Pastor Deacon was saying. We don't want to discourage them at all. And uh, I found a good opportunity. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a good opportunity with our children uh, to just very quietly talk to them about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And to remind them that this, this is something that we do, that the Lord has commanded. And uh, we're remembering what Christ has done. We're communing with Christ and with the church. And uh, this, is, this is a physical uh, representation of, uh, of the message of the gospel. And so it's a good time to encourage them to continue in believing. And most of our children, I would say, probably uh, would say they believe in Christ. And that's a wonderful, important thing to continue to encourage. And so the best thing in those times, I think, is just to say, well, keep believing. Keep having faith in Christ. Keep trusting in the Lord. And uh, when, when the time comes, you'll be able to, uh, you'll be able to uh, take the Lord's Supper and you'll be able to be baptized and... Um, you know, most kids, in my experience, over time, they sort of, they'll ask a question, we'll answer it, and it may be a few more months, and then they'll ask about it again. And at some point, as they're getting older, they become a little more persistent in that and, and wanting uh, to receive the means of grace. And, and maybe that's a time to talk a bit more seriously about those things. But, um, but I would say it's a great opportunity to say, as, as was mentioned, this is for Christians who are members of a church, and, uh, and you're not quite there yet, but that's okay. If you don't have the Lord's Supper, that doesn't mean that uh, if you were to die today that you wouldn't go to heaven. Um, that you keep trusting in Jesus, and when, when you're at a place where you can really understand what's going on here, and uh, you can explain that to me as well, then, uh, then we'll talk some more. But um, just encourage their faith. I think that's the best thing we can do um, is to not focus on what you can't do, but rather to encourage them to keep believing, keep looking to Jesus, and, uh, and in time we'll, we'll see where your faith takes you and assess uh, in time uh, what we can do for that. So, <coughs> um, good, all right. Um, this one's uh, pretty straightforward, so I'll just uh, answer it very quickly. Uh, someone said, I became Facebook friends with a Reformed Baptist pastor's wife. She mentioned in one of our conversations that her husband disagrees with the Reformed Baptist network 
in that he believes missionaries need to be sent from individual churches and not missionary organizations. <coughs> okay, um, so I think the assumption that this pastor is making is an incorrect assumption. The Reformed Baptist Network, of which we are a uh, member and um, charter member church, um, is not a mission-sending organization. We do believe very strongly that missionaries are sent out from a local church. The issue is that some local churches, many, if not most, Reformed Baptist churches are of such a size and limited in their resources that they alone are not able to support a missionary uh, full-time to do the work. But not only that, uh, you have to think when you're going to other parts of the world, there are a lot of logistical issues that need to be taken care of uh, that most people just aren't familiar with. Um, how do you get money to this person without that costing you a tremendous amount just to do the money transfers and things? Um, how do you deal with things like insurance and retirement and housing and transportation? And these things become very difficult very quickly. Um, aside from all the other uh, immigration issues and do you have the right visa and all that. So churches rely uh, on organizations that focus on these specific issues. And so the Reformed Baptist Network functions in such a way that, one, we are able to help with some of those logistical details, but two, as a, uh, as a sort of clearinghouse for multiple churches to help support this one missionary because their local church doesn't have the resources in order to send them. And so that support is monetary, of course. We are able to send funds to a central location uh, so it's easier to manage. And again, if you, you think, uh, if you have a small church with 50 members and a part-time secretary receiving checks every month from all over the place trying to keep track of it, it becomes very difficult. So we have a central place to uh, gather those resources. We have a central place that can help with... Um, with all of the logistical details, uh, but then it's also a place where uh, prayer requests can be distributed, we can get updates on our missionaries, and uh, you get those in your email every month, our prayer guide and our updates, and that's very helpful. I don't, I don't, depending on how many you've ever signed up for, but I know pastors, we get emails like every day from missions, organizations, or individual missionaries, and over time it just becomes so much. It's really nice to have something uh, consolidated so it's all together. So um, the Reformed Baptist Network is, is a help to the local church, but it is, the Reformed Baptist Network is, uh, is governed by local churches. It's not the other way around. There are missions organizations, and I think what he is assuming is that we are like that, but we're not. But there are missions organizations that um, essentially take on a missionary and, uh, and they sort of pull away, in some sense, from their local church. And they become sort of the, the entity that is watching over them and caring for their soul and, um, and doing all their training and everything else. And, uh, and we don't agree with that. I think a missionary needs to be tied to their church, and the church needs to have their spiritual oversight and, uh, and, and soul care uh, within the church, and, and we believe very strongly in that in our network, and so um, 
Yeah, so I think it's just a mistake in terms of what their understanding is. I, uh, I just want to confirm, I'm on the PNF committee with RBNet, yeah. and they do a good job at communicating to the churches when you send money to RBNet, it's designated to a specific missionary. So that's one of the requirements. And they, every once in a while, they will get some money that's just said, please use it however you want. And then there's a committee to put together to actually decide where that should go. But uh, I would say 98% of all the money is designated to a specific missionary. So. Just to add this, um, the network is made up of churches of like faith. We have the 1689 Confession, so they're not working with wild churches, which is something that is important to us because we believe that it's a biblical principles that order, just as Pastor says. So it's important to have that kind of a confidence this is a group of committed churches to what we hold to as believers. And it's, it's functioning to help the order of the church. As you said, it's a local church that's ahead of, it, ahead of the missionary, but it's to help them. I yeah. agree entirely. Amen. Yeah. Can you point out that there's a church in the network that's helping with Bethlehem Baptist? Yeah, yeah, great point, great point. When, when we started the church plant, uh, Bethlehem Baptist Fellowship, we had reached out to our network and asked for assistance. And we do have one uh, RBNet church that sends funds every month to help us with that effort. And so we've benefited from that. The work in Nigeria has benefited tremendously from this network of churches. But, but nobody would look at our church planning effort and say, that's an RBNet church plant in that sense. It's, it's a church plant out of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and RBNet supports that. And same with the work in Nigeria and any of these other missionaries. And, and that's uh, when those reports come out from those missionaries, uh, it's, it's from the missionary, but usually the, it, it indicates what church they're, they're a part of and what church they're being sent from. And, uh, and oftentimes the communication about our missionaries actually comes from that church and not the individual. And so we maintain that very close tie there. <coughs> All right. Let's move on to some more theological questions. Um, if circumcision was a sign of the old covenant of God and was to be received by all males and infants to be brought into the family of God, why is it that we don't baptize babies in the new covenant as a sign? Since the new covenant is open now to all, not just males and infants, but to both men and women, and is to be received by believers and their families, citing Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. So, you guys, any of you want to start? <laughs> I, I just would say, because we're a Baptist church. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good answer. <laughs> I think the answer is in the Sunday school class that was done a couple of weeks ago yeah. on the confession on baptism. There's, um, because of my background, a little bit involved with the Covenant Reformed, not the Covenant Reformed, but the Reformed Church in baptism, believers' baptism. Uh, it's, um, it's difficult because I was just re recently at the pastor's conference and there are Reformed Presbyterians, Reformed good men. And I was asked to give my testimony at the home that I was staying and the pastor who was Reformed sat next to me. And I came from a pedo Baptist, and I had to explain why I left that. And I thought, this is awkward. I didn't want to be unkind to him, but I want to say the truth. 
but that whole area of the covenant theology is is it's rich for the Baptist mm-hmm. you've done any reading at all on, on the covenant theology and their basis it's amazing to me that they can't catch it and it's an unkind it's to say like I know the answers but there's clear indications in the scriptures and they're opened up and I think Pastor Nick is going to give us the answer here <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, chapter 29 of our confession deals with this, and I taught on that just a few weeks ago in Sunday school. So, um, so I actually addressed this very issue. So if you weren't here for that and you're interested, you can go check that out. Um, but I, I think one, one major thing that as Baptists we need to really focus on is because um, our Reformed, mostly Presbyterian friends, um, tie baptism to circumcision— we need to point out that the, the correlation between circumcision in the Old Covenant and what we see in the New Covenant is not baptism, but it's the circumcision of the heart. And so it's consistent throughout the Scripture. Circumcision is still a sign uh, that exists today, but it's no longer of the flesh, it's of the heart. It's a spiritual circumcision of the heart, and the Bible talks about that. And so there is continuity um, where they're drawing something that is, is rather discontinuity. And so then you look at baptism. Well, we see there is baptism in the Old Covenant. When John the Baptist shows up on the scene, he's not just doing something new that nobody knew what it was or what it had been. And you can look at all sorts of baptisms in the Old Testament to include, uh, to include actually when... Moses parts the sea. That's thought of as a, as a baptism of sorts. Um, and so uh, there, one, one, of the, one of the things we see in the Old Covenant is uh, within the Levitical priesthood. I didn't go into this in Sunday school, so I'll deal with it here. Uh, in the Levitical priesthood, there were certain washings that they had to go through. Uh, before they went into the temple, before they made the sacrifices, uh, they had a whole ritual of washings they had to do. And, um, and especially in the Septuagint, as you read uh, about those, it's, it's essentially referred to as a baptism of sorts. Now, these were the priests of the Old Covenant. Well, who are the priests of the New Covenant? We are. We're the priesthood of believers. And so, um, so it makes sense uh, that as we come as the people of God before God, uh, that we undergo this same uh, means of grace, but in, in a sense, the same sort of ritual that we are being, we are being cleansed. There's an outward sign of a cleansing that has taken place in the believer. And so there's continuity with baptism, just as there's continuity with uh, circumcision. And um, the, uh, the reference that was made was to Acts chapter 2, and there are many statements uh, that we have to deal with honestly that refer to the blessing of the children of believers. You see in 1 Corinthians 7 and Acts chapter 2 and uh, several statements in Acts about the household believing. Um, But a few things to point out there. One is that um, any instance you read of in the Bible where it says, and their household, you're you're having to assume something and read into the text to, to to come out with the conclusion that this included children. That there's nothing in the text indicating that children were included in that statement in their household. That they could have all been 
older, they, but the indication actually is that they were people who believed. And so Acts 2, 38 and 39 was cited, but you really need to go on to uh, verse 40. Because in 2.38, uh, the Apostle Peter preaches, repent and be baptized. But the result of that in verse 40 says, the result was that those who received his word were baptized. And so what does that indicate? It indicates that there was faith. Receive the word that was given. They have placed their faith in Jesus. Therefore, they were baptized. And so that blessing is on their household, but the household is receiving that blessing because they have believed. Um, <clears throat> now, if you deal with something like a statement in 1 Corinthians 7, where the Apostle Paul is saying that a child with a believing parent is, uh, is holy or blessed, um, I think that's a, a very easy thing for us to understand. And it kind of goes back to our previous uh, question um, that a child growing up in a Christian home is blessed. Uh, they receive the means of grace. They come to church. They hear the preaching of the gospel. They go to Sunday school. They learn uh, the scriptures. They have family worship. Their parents are praying for them and with them. And uh, they're teaching them the scriptures. And they're surrounded by a community of believers who love them and pray for them and encourage them in the faith. Um, how that could not be considered a blessing for a child, I don't know. Uh, it doesn't mean that they are to be uh, considered a part of the covenant because the covenant is, is for those who have placed their faith in Christ, uh, those whom uh, Christ has called to himself and has made his own, that he has shed his blood for. Um, they, they have faith, and so they're a member of the covenant. They're a member of the church. Um, and so there is a tremendous blessing there. And there's no, no reason to shy away from that as Baptists and, and assume that that text means anything other than it does. Children are blessed to be in a Christian home. Amen. We want that for all of our children. Um, but to take that a step further and say, well, then that means that we should include them as those who are part of the covenant promises and therefore they are members of the church, um, our Pado-Baptist brethren, make their children are automatically members of the church because their parents are members of the church and they've been sprinkled and brought in. Um, but then you have this uh, challenging issue of, well, they're members of the church, but they're, we don't believe they're converted, but we, some, not all, would say we presume they will be converted. And if nothing else, it's all based upon we believe that God will save them um, based on the promises he's given to believers and their households. But at some point, you have to make a determination, well, maybe they're actually not a believer, but they never asked to be a member of the church. So now we excommunicate them for something they never professed in the first place. And you have all of these, these, you know, so they always sort of laugh at Baptists. Um, and we're brothers and sisters in Christ, so sometimes hopefully in, in jest and sharpening one another, but saying, well, you, you know, you just assume your children are little devils until they can prove otherwise, and then you baptize them, and you never actually know if they're, they're saved. So, um, but the reality is they have sort of the opposite problem of how do you determine and what's the right time to determine that they're not actually uh, converted and are no longer to be a part of the church. Um, 
and so you're going to sort of you're going to put them out of the church that they never joined of their own volition in the first place um, so there's all these sort of practical matters involved as well uh, but the very essence theologically biblically that it comes down to is every indication that we have in the new testament is a call to repent to believe and to be baptized um, or it's, sometimes it simply says repent and be baptized or Jesus in the Great Commission go into all the world what does he say and make disciples baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so what is the indication first and foremost that they become disciples that they're believers that they're, they're followers and students of Christ and not just go into all the world make disciples and baptize them and their children uh, because now they're all part of the new covenant. No, go make disciples, baptize them. Um, and those are all the indications we have in the scriptures. So um, it, it's important that we read carefully and that we understand the text very carefully. Um, and so there's a, a lot more that could be said about that. But um, as far as the issue of circumcision, the continuity is between circumcision of flesh and circumcision of the heart. And the circumcision of the heart only happens when a person is regenerated and justified and made new in Christ. <clears throat> All right, a lengthy question, a good question, um, and this may be our last. Um, All right, I know there were 12 apostles trained and commissioned by the Lord Jesus to be sent for the work of the ministry with his divine authority. Judas Iscariot proved to be a devil, committed suicide, and had to be replaced by Matthias. It seems like they regarded the number 12 to be symbolic and important as it is in Revelation calling together the true Israel, 24 thrones and elders, etc. Then Paul was added to the group as one untimely born, 1 Corinthians 15. He defended how he had the requirements of the apostleship. He was an eyewitness of the resurrection and commissioned by Jesus. But then Acts 14.14 14 called both Barnabas and Paul apostles and Galatians 1.19 seems to imply that James, the Lord's brother, was also considered an apostle. 1 Corinthians 15 says the risen Christ appeared to James, so he would have been qualified. Romans 16.7 has some translations, including the Vulgate, that call Andronicus and Junia to be outstanding among the apostles. And some other texts, it could be implied that Silas, Timothy, and Apollos had a similar office or position. Could you explain Christ's foundational gift of the apostleship to the church? Good. Any thoughts? I was raised Catholic, and uh, 12 was like imprinted on my head forever, <laughs> you know. Um, there's that tradition in my, in my mind. But um, I think it's a good question. Um, obviously, it's not a question critically important question you know when you consider all the all the doctrines that we believe but I'll I'll pass it back to you Nick <laughs> okay you have anything you want Christian a little bit confusing because it talks about asking about 12 and then it gets into these all these other people that supposedly were questions and um, I think you should answer it but okay there's just there are <clears throat> apostle as a term used uh, sent ones right and there are 12 sent ones that the Lord sent out and then there are other men that are referred to as sent ones 
Barnabas and uh, uh, James, I think, and mm -hmm. then uh, one other one. So there's, uh, I don't know the 12 number. I, I've never gotten into that area, but the other ones, there's, there's 12 apostles. And that the other reference, references to apostles um, were sent ones, not so much they were one of the 12. Yeah. Um, so, yes, we have, so you have the 12 original. Judas was a devil. They replaced him in Acts um, with Matthias. So then you have, then that's 13, and then Paul, 14. So in terms of numbering, really, you have uh, 14 who would have been called those who had the office of the apostle. And here's the distinction to be made. It's between the office of the apostle and uh, the, um, the spiritual gift of an apostle. Um, so big A, apostle, would be the office. Little A, apostle, would be the gift. Now, in essence, when we send out missionaries, what we are doing is sending out little A, apostles, in terms of the gift. But we don't want to call them apostles because that associates them with the office that was reserved for those who were specifically called and ordained and sent out by Christ himself. Um, these 14 are the ones that we have clearly indicated in the scripture to be those who were the apostles for the foundation of the church. Um, and so how that, how that works out in terms of the thrones and revelation, well, um, the, um, it's, it's very symbolic, of, of course. The other 12 thrones believed to be reserved for the prophets of the Old Testament, uh, but there's, there's more than 12 prophets. So who are those 12 uh, of the major and the minor prophets and everything else? Um, it's all very symbolic, that there's um, the idea being there's continuity, uh, that there's balance, that there's order. Uh, these are the things that we see from, uh, from those numbers being indicated. But... Uh, but you're, you're right, there are, uh, there are multiple instances when we have people who were not numbered among the 12 or the 14, if you will, that are uh, the, the apostles, but they have the gift of the apostles. In other words, um, you have uh, mentioned, I've said already, James, Barnabas, Andronicus, Junius, possibly Silas and Timothy and Apollos. Um, they all had the gift of apostleship, but not because this office was conferred on them in the same way that we see with the office of the apostle. Um, so they were gifted brethren who would have been those who were planting churches uh, or uh, leading early on in the church to, to, uh, to, to start new churches and to bring in new believers and so in that sense, as they went from place to place, as they were beginning churches and even um, some of them pastoring churches, that they had this specific gift. And it is a specific gift. Not every pastor is uh, gifted to be able to plant a new church. It takes a specific kind of man, someone who's uh, very patient and uh, long-suffering and, and willing to go uh, the long haul in order to do that. It's not an easy thing to do. And God gifts men for that task very specifically. And so those would be those who have that, 
that gift of the apostle and not the office. There are no, there are, there's nobody today who holds the office of an apostle. Uh, the requirements for that are very specifically laid out in the book of Acts, what that person had to be, first and foremost, an eyewitness of the resurrection, called and commissioned directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if anyone claims today to have been an eyewitness of the resurrection, um, you need to help them seek help immediately. Um, but there are plenty of people um, who, and this is especially prevalent in charismatic circles, who will claim to be apostles. Well, on what basis? And, and how is it that you're calling yourself an apostle? If what is meant is that they're sort of sent out by their denomination or their church to plant churches, okay, we understand that, but most people aren't making that distinction between office and gift. And so we simply don't use that language, even though it could be technically accurate to say a missionary has an apostolic gift, uh, but they do not hold that office and their writings are not to be included in the canon of scripture and uh, they don't hold the authority uh, that the apostles held um, or else we would need to listen to and do everything they said. And if you pay any attention to those who call themselves apostles, very often what they have to say is very contrary to scripture. So that's the sh short answer on that. Good and important question. Those things can be confusing as you read through them. So, all right. We had a couple more, but we are out of time, so we will hold those for next time. I hope some of those answers were helpful, and uh, keep sending them. We can store them up and, and have these, and if we get a lot of questions, we may sprinkle in some more of these times to, uh, to get to them. Uh, these guys look forward to it every time. <laughs> Close us in prayer. Sure. Let's, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word, that you haven't left us without direction and without purpose. We thank you for your goodness in providing the word of God. And we thank you that you've taught us that the greatest thing is love. And we do pray that you would help us to love you more and to love one another more and that we might bring honor and glory to you and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.